I had a conversation with somebody this morning who uh, said they were going to give in the offering now that it's in the back corner and there's none after I preach. I was like, really? No pressure, guys. No pressure. <laughs> See how I do, and then, well, you know, I don't know about that. Hey, I want you to do a little exercise here. I want you to think about the last time that a politician you voted for got into office. What do you think about that feeling of excitement and relief as you watch the numbers scroll across the screen? Thank you, Lord. Finally, we have somebody in office that's going to make some changes and get rid of these awful policies that the last government put in place and is going to finally get something done for good. That feeling of hope and expectation and excitement that finally some good was going to happen for your city or your province or your country. Remember when you first graduated from university or from high school and that feeling of excitement, anticipation, and hope you were going to change the world. You had so many ideas and it was so exciting and you knew that you were going to make a difference, you and your friends, and you were filled with the expectation and hope of what was about to come in your life. Do you remember the joy mixed with a little terror looking into the face of your newborn child and thinking, wow, the possibilities that are in front of us, this child can be anything, can do anything, and, and I'm here to help guide them. I will sacrifice anything, I'll do anything to help this child grow into who God has created him or her to be. You had incredible hope and anticipation and excitement knowing that there was good things ahead for this baby. Hope, expectations, we all have them. Sometimes those things are met and we're excited and it's wonderful. And of course, we've all had our expectations dashed. Sometimes that's because somebody else doesn't follow through on a promise that they made. Sometimes it's because we kind of sabotage things ourselves and maybe didn't do what we were supposed to do to bring that about. Sometimes our expectations were just wrong. They weren't the right expectations, and so what we thought might happen didn't happen. The Jewish people in Jesus' day were full of hope and expectation, too. They were very religious people. They were very good about practicing all the things that they thought they needed to do to please God and to show their devotion for him. Now, yes, in the Old Testament, God had laid out things that, that he wanted for them to do and to be, but they had added an awful lot of stuff to that. Instead of making it about a relationship with God, they had made it about doing stuff, presumably for God, but often the stuff they were doing was just for the eyes of other people to try to make them look good. But they genuinely thought that they were serving God, that they were being righteous, pious, devoted, doing all the right things. The Jews were also expecting a Messiah, a messenger from God, the Son of God himself, to come. He had been prophesied for hundreds of years, and these Jewish people were waiting and waiting for him to come. And they expected, had certain expectations of what this Messiah would be like. For one, they were waiting for him to come and commend them for all the good that they were doing and the way that they were following God so devotedly, so piously, so religiously. They thought for sure that he would be pleased with that. 
And along with that, they had an expectation that this Messiah was coming to start a military coup. They were oppressed by the Romans. They'd been serving under them for many, many years. And they were looking for that day when this Messiah would come, free them from the oppression, and set up a kingdom, a Jewish kingdom, that was going to be theirs and theirs alone. So they were expecting a very strong and mighty leader to come at some point, a Messiah. And then Jesus came, not as a military leader, not inciting them to war, and not commending them for their so-called righteousness. No, he came and he sat on a hillside and he said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5, 5. One of the beatitudes that we are studying right now. Well, these Jews were not prepared for their Messiah to be humble and gentle and meek. Then to expect them to be that way also. Wait, we're supposed to be meek? That's not what we were expecting a Messiah to teach us. They were not impressed, honestly, to hear this man, Jesus, that many were claiming to be the Messiah, telling them that we should all be gentle and meek. I mean, how are a bunch of gentle and meek people supposed to overthrow the Roman government? Wasn't Jesus supposed to be rousing the people to take over the world, you know, with his inspiring speeches and his encouraging and organizing them to take up arms against Rome and, and become this great revolution? You know, I think they were expecting more Fidel Castro than Jesus Christ, inciting them to some sort of revolution. But Jesus said the revolution comes from the inside, out. He didn't look at all the pious things they were doing. He didn't even look at the oppression they were under and say, well, the way out, the way to victory in life, the way to be blessed is to get out from underneath that oppression. No, the way to be blessed is to be meek, even if you are oppressed. That goes very against what the Jews were thinking in that day and what we as, a, as our world thinks today. It just shows how upside down the thinking of Jesus was. So our very first message in this series about the attitudes was about upside down thinking. And that is over and over and over again, the message of the gospel, that Jesus came to overthrow the ideas that the world is full of, to say, this is the opposite of what you'd expect it to be. If you want to take over the world and inherit the earth, you need to be meek. Very different from what they were expecting and what we were expecting. And the problem is that the Jewish, Jewish people's false expectations of what they thought the Messiah would be is what kept them from recognizing him as the Messiah, and they rejected him. And the truth is there today, too, that sometimes our false expectations of who we think Jesus is or should be keeps us from accepting him. Take him for who he is and who he says he is, not what we think he should be. Because Jesus identified himself as exactly the Messiah that, that he said here, the meek one. He identified with Isaiah's prophecy about who the Messiah would be. 
In Luke 4, 18, it tells us how Jesus went to the temple and he picked up the scriptures and he opened it to Isaiah 61 and he began to read, knowing that the words he read were about him. He was reaffirming that I am the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied, but the, uh, the Messiah that Isaiah prophesied was not the military leader to overthrow the world. He read, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are downtrodden, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Not to come and commend people for their pious actions and acts of righteousness. No, to care for the poor and the downtrodden. Somewhere between the time that Isaiah prophesied this and Jesus came to fulfill that prophecy, the Jewish people, the Jewish religious leaders, had misinterpreted Isaiah's prophecy and reinterpreted it to mean what they wanted it to mean. They wanted to mean a physical fight to release the downtrodden from their captivity to Rome. They assumed that the favorable year of the Lord would be the year in which they were able to establish their Jewish kingdom with their Jewish king. The Jews missed the point. Jesus came as a servant. He said so himself in Mark 10:45. For even the Son of Man, which is a title Jesus often used of himself, did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Apostle Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, he also understood what Jesus came and what kind of kingdom he was going to bring, and he understood our place in that kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 27, he said, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. Author John MacArthur Jr. says in his book, Kingdom Living Here and Now, Jesus was saying, it's not the self-sufficient, the self-righteous, the proud, the strong, the arrogant, the confident, and the religious who enter my kingdom. It is the broken and the mourning and the meek and the hungry and the thirsty and the merciful and the pure, and the peacemakers, and the persecuted, and the reviled, and the slandered who never retaliate. They're the citizens of my kingdom. I'm so glad I don't have to be self-sufficient and strong to be in, enter into God's kingdom, aren't you? Understanding the audience that Jesus was speaking to and the context in which he said these things helps us to understand why this upside-down teaching was so dramatically different to them and, and turned their expectations on their head. But what about the word meek itself? What did, what did the Jewish people understand that to mean? You have to look at not just what we think that word means, but when Jesus first said it, well, what would his audience have recognized that word to mean in their culture? Well, you've all heard of Aristotle, right? If you're like me, you didn't really understand this until I preached this sermon. Aristotle actually lived before Jesus. 
Who knew this? I don't know why. I don't want my history, but I didn't know that. He lived about 300 years before Jesus. He was a Greek philosopher. So his teachings were widely known, and his ways of thinking had widely been adopted by the people of Jesus' day. So when he, Jesus used the same word for meek that Aristotle had used instead of his teachings, the people immediately would have understood where he was coming from and what Aristotle meant, what Jesus meant, was tied together. So what did Aristotle say about meekness? Well, one of the things that Aristotle taught was on the virtues of life, meekness being one of them, and he said that the virtues of life are the mean between two excesses, an excess of something and a deficiency in something. So meekness is the virtue that is the mean, the middle ground between excessive anger and the inability to show anger at all. Aristotle wrote, a meek person is one who is angry at the right time, in the right place, with the right people, and knows how to quit at the right time. That same Greek word that Aristotle used to say meek, in what we use in English, is the same Greek word that the original Greek manuscripts of the Beatitudes used, and the word is praus. Now, praus was a word that was also used of animals that had been tamed. Think of the Greek war horses that Aristotle would have been very familiar with, these giant beasts with great power, but they'd been domesticated. Same with an, an ox, a huge beast of burden with great power, but tamed. When those animals are tamed, they don't lose their strength. Think about that. They don't do anything to the horse or the ox or any other beast to make it less strong. They simply bring its power under control. So the same is for us. This is how the Jewish audience would have understood meek. Oh, well, that's an animal that's been domesticated, a Greek war horse, one of our oxen that we plow with. They're tamed, they're praus, they're meek. That's what Jesus was saying that we are to be. We are to be tamed by God himself. We come under his power. A tamed beast doesn't lose its power, but it does learn to use that strength and power in an appropriate way, at an appropriate time, and under the authority of its master as the master directs it. So it's easy to see how that relates to how we should be under the power of God. As we become meek, we don't lose our strength or our power or our control. We submit it to God. And then he uses that strength and he uses that power as he deems necessary and for his good purposes in this world and in our lives. That same word, praus, is used to describe Jesus meekly or gently riding into Jerusalem on a donkey in Matthew 21.5. And Matthew 21.5 is actually a quote from Zephaniah 9.9 in the Old Testament. So another prophet who predicted that Jesus would be a meek Messiah, and Jesus fulfilled that prophecy. Jesus used that same word, praus, about himself. In Matthew 11.29, he said, Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me, for I am praus, gentle, meek, and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's the kind of Jesus I want to serve. A Jesus who says, I'm gentle, and come to me and you'll find rest for your souls. The last thing I need is a harsh taskmaster. The last thing I need is somebody who's so powerful and strong they intimidate me and I feel like I can't 
come to them and I can't be rested. I want a meek Jesus. I want a meek Jesus who understands my weakness, who says, I am stronger than anyone or anything in this entire universe, and I chose to put my strength under the control of my Father God and allow him to use it. I can relate. I can relate to that. He doesn't want to beat me down. He doesn't want to make me less than what he created me to be. He doesn't want to take away my strength or my power. He just wants me to bring it to him and surrender. And I will find rest in my soul. Because if you are continually striving to be the one in control, the one who is powerful, the one who is strong, the one who refuses to be beaten down or taken advantage of, there is no rest in your soul. There is striving, constant striving. The rest comes from saying, I surrender that desire to be in control, that desire to be strong and powerful to you, Jesus. You come. You take control. Then there is rest in your soul. Meekness isn't something that Jesus introduced to some new concept to his followers either. As is so much the case in the Bible, themes that follow all the way through from the Old Testament all the way to the New Testament one of the examples of meekness in the Old Testament is Abraham. Abraham and his nephew Lot left their home country and began to travel to where God was leading them. He just, God just said, get up, leave, go to this country, and they followed. As they moved in this way and kept traveling, they grew and grew in wealth, and wealth in those days was measured in animals. So they had a lot of animals that all needed room to graze. Soon there was just not enough room as they traveled together for all of their animals to graze together and their herdsmen began fighting with each other over the ground and where they were going to graze and who had the best ground and all those things. So Abraham went to Lot and he said, let's not fight. I don't want our herdsmen to be doing that. Let's separate. We'll go in different directions. We'll find enough land for each of us to graze our animals in peace. So let's do that. You choose Lot. Where would you like to go? What, is, what land would you like? Well, of course, Lot chose the best land for himself. Now, Abraham was the uncle to Lot. He had seniority. He could have easily pulled the trump card and said, I will choose, and you're going to take that one over there and give him the worst land. He could have totally done that, taken the best land for himself, and Lot would have had no choice. But Abraham trusted God with the outcome. He meekly submitted himself to God's will. He left that choice Oh, it sounds like it's in Lot's hands. Abraham knew God, and he knew that ultimately that choice was in God's hands. God would direct. Here's the interesting thing. The very next thing recorded in the Bible after it says that Lot chose the best land and left for it, the very next thing that is recorded is this. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward, for all the land that you see I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. Abraham didn't have to exert his authority or his power because he trusted God, and God rewarded him with far more land than the little bit that Lot got. Numbers 12.3 says Moses was more meek 
than anyone else on the earth. Yet Moses is the same guy who confronted Pharaoh, the leader, the king of Egypt, and demanded that he let the nation of Israel go free from slavery. Moses is the same guy who took the, the Ten Commandments that God himself had written with his finger and smashed them to the ground because he was so infuriated with the sin of idolatry that the people of Israel were committing. Moses led millions of people through a desert for 40 years. That doesn't sound like a meek man if your definition of meekness is weakness. But here's the deal. Moses had no confidence in himself, but he had great confidence in God. He knew where his power and his authority came from to do these things. It came from God. He didn't need to defend himself, but he had no problem using that power and authority to defend the things of God. When people sinned against God, when they abused God's people, that he could use that power that God had given him in, under the control of God to defend the things of God. We see that echoed in Jesus' life as well, the ultimate example of meekness, of course. He, he showed what it means to be meek in the face of injustice and hurt. When he was brought before the governor, Pontius Pilate, to be tried before his crucifixion, this was his response from Matthew 27, 12 to 14. When he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, don't you hear the testimony that is being, uh, of the chief priests uh, that are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Jesus did not defend himself. He left his defense with God. Author William Barclay writes, selfish, uh, selfish anger is always a sin. Selfless anger can be one of the great moral dynamics of the world. And this is where we see Jesus using selfless anger, not selfish, but selfless anger, against religious leaders who are leading people into legalism and away from God's grace and his love. He showed anger in a righteous way against people who were at the temple of God, turning it into a marketplace and selling things. And it wasn't just that they were selling things, but what they were selling were the sacrifices. People would travel from far away, all over the country, to come to Jerusalem to sacrifice. And rather than bringing an animal with them for a long distance, when they got to Jerusalem, they would, they would bring their money with them, and they would buy a sacrifice. And these people at the temple were extorting the people, charging far more than the going price for these animals because they knew they could. And that angered Jesus that they were using something that was to be a gift to God and extorting it from the people. He didn't use his anger to defend himself, but he did use his anger in the defense of the things of God. When he knew that people were being abused by religious leaders, when he knew that people were being abused by people who were, were extorting them, his anger rose up. Meekness starts with a true view of oneself. Becoming poor in spirit, as we learned a couple of weeks ago, is recognizing your own sinfulness and your inability to do anything about it yourself. Meekness comes as a result of mourning that great sinfulness and separation from God, which we heard about last week, and then recognizing that it's only by God's grace and mercy that you can be forgiven and made whole. 
When you see yourself in the light of your great inability to do anything about your life and your sinful condition, but God's great ability to do it all for you, you become humble and meek. That very thought just humbles you. A man named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, to be truly meek means we no longer protect ourselves because we see there is nothing worth defending. Now that goes against much of what the world says. Uh, Broken in spirit focuses on my sinfulness. Meekness focuses on God's holiness. Meekness is power or strength under control, as we'd said before. It's a power that's used only in the defense of the things of God, not in the defense of oneself. It's not defending ourselves, but it is defending the things of God. It is strength or power under control, and that control is the self-control that the Holy Spirit grows in our life. Both self-control and meekness or gentleness are fruits of the Spirit, things that we don't try hard to do or try to conjure up in ourselves or work for. No, they are fruits that grow in the fertile soil of our lives. So for us, it's a matter of letting go, not trying to work harder. It's focusing on spending time in building a relationship with Jesus. And how do you do that? You talk to him in prayer. You sit quietly and listen for him to speak to you. You open the word of God, the Bible, and you read it to hear what he has to say to you. That relationship grows. As that grows, you're creating fertile soil in your life. And in that, God will produce the fruit of meekness and self-control in you. Power under control. It's meekness. Meekness is a complete absence of pride. A complete absence of the spirit of retaliation. Meekness is the opposite of violence and vengeance. Same author, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones, said, We leave ourselves and our cause, our rights and everything with God, with a quietness in spirit and in mind and in heart. Meekness is not retaliating, but rather trusting ourselves and our lives to Jesus. 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23 says of Jesus, He did not revile in return, While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. It comes down to trust. Do you trust God to handle the hurt and the injustice that you face in this world? Do you trust him to defend you when you could try it yourself, but it's probably not the wisest thing to do. Do you feel that you need to defend yourself or take things into your own hands because God's just not able? Or he's not doing it the way you think he should? Or he's not doing it fast enough for you in the timing that you would like? Meekness is, in part, learning to control our anger by giving our frustrations to God and not trying to fix things ourselves. There's a lack of meekness displayed when we lash out at others around us. It's a journey I've been walking on in the last year, especially. I didn't recognize it as developing meekness until I began to work on this message. But 
It was a tough year with COVID, and a big part of it for me was feeling that there was injustice in the way that things were being handled, that I had no voice in it, there was nothing I could do to change it, and it would just rile me up inside until I'd lash out, either in person or on Facebook. It comes from hurt, it comes from fear, it comes from all kinds of things that are not of God inside me. In the midst of that, a dear friend, Delaney McLeod, she gave me permission to share this story, but she came to me one day. We had a good heart-to-heart talk, and she shared with me a truth that God had been teaching her that she had learned over the years, the idea of giving things to Jesus. Now, we say those words often, just give it to God, just give it to God. What does that mean? How do you practically do that? And she shared with me an exercise that she does, and she's often before bed at night when all the worries of the day are in your minds. And it works other times. For me, it's in the middle of the day reading a news story that just starts to get me, my blood boiling riled up. It's a physical act, often, if I can, wherever I am, hands out, out loud, if at all possible. Jesus, I give this to you, and I name it. Sometimes it's a person. Not to be silly, but literally, Jesus, I give you Justin Trudeau. I don't always agree with some of the decisions he's making, and I don't know how to fix that, and it makes me upset. I give him to you. He's yours. You do something. Here's what I found that it changed in me. It wasn't that I hadn't been praying. I pray constantly. I'm a person who's just, it's an internal dialogue constantly through the day, talking to God, and moments of sitting down and talking to God. But do you know what my prayer time was like through much of COVID? God, this really sucks, and I don't know what to do about it, and please help me, and this is not fair. And it's, it was complaint after complaint after complaint. God can handle those complaints, and there is a place. You read the Psalms, lots of times he's complaining. But I'll tell you this, I don't know of any Psalm, and maybe there is some, but I, I would say the vast majority where there is complaint, where there's God, why are the wicked prospering? When will you act on their behalf? Why is this happening? The end was things like, I will rejoice in you, God. I will put my trust in you. I will put my faith in you. I will give you this thing. Complaints, it happens. But that's not where we stay. That's not where we focus. It's in giving it to Jesus. And by naming it and giving it, it left me no room to give God direction on what he should do and how he should do it. It didn't leave me room to keep complaining because it's not mine anymore. I gave it to him. And I go back to that again and again when the thoughts come. I gave you that injustice, God. I gave that to you. Whether it's something in the world or something personal and something's been done to you, there's that time to say, I give this to you. You be my defense, God. I'm giving this to you, Jesus. Meekness is a hard thing to wrap our heads around. No one wants to get walked all over. And if you've been hurt in the past, it's especially difficult. We become defensive. We say, I'm not letting that happen to me again. No one's ever going to treat me that way again. And our defenses go up. Often, you can spot hurting people by that defensiveness. But that attitude that says, no one's going to get me again. I'm not letting that happen to me. That's a time to say, it's not my hurt to fix. Do you trust God with that past hurt? 
Or do you feel that you need to do something, fix it, make that person pay? Or can you trust God to defend you? It may not be in the timing you like or the way you like, but do you trust him? Is he truly good all the time? It's hard questions to ask yourself in the midst of hurt. Meekness is not just being nice. It's not love and joy and peace and harmony at all cost. Jesus demonstrated that for us, that he had times when he spoke the truth in love and he defended the things of God. There is a time for that. Under the control of the Holy Spirit, surrender to him. But it's also not just choosing not to do the wrong thing. I'm very angry, but I am not going to lash out. I'm not going to act on it. No, meekness is this thing that grows within you through the grace of God that gets you to a point where you don't even think about retaliating. It doesn't even cross your mind to lash out when someone does something to you where you feel angry. Can you imagine that point? Maybe some of you are there. I'm still working on it. I'm still getting there. And by working on it, what I'm really doing is working on my relationship with Jesus I don't want to leave you with the impression that the Beatitudes or anything else in the Bible is a list of things that you must do or not do. That is not it. It is a relationship with Jesus. All it is is a relationship with Jesus. For those who think the Bible is a list of do's and don'ts and you have to follow all these rules to be a Christian, throw that idea out. All you need to do is say, Jesus, I come to you. I trust you for the forgiveness of my sins and then I trust you with every hurt that has happened in the past that is yet to happen, that's ongoing at this moment. I want to be like you in every reaction and action that I take, and that's only going to come as I just spend time with you. It's just time with Jesus that grows that in you, and you become more like Jesus, more meek as you, as you do that, as you spend that time with him. Meekness is having such a complete trust in God and his ability to handle the outcome that you could quietly and confidently leave it with him. Isaiah 30, 15. It's an often quoted verse that has a little tag at the end that we miss. It sounds very nice. This is what the sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. In repentance and rest is your salvation. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you would have none of it. We, we don't want to read that part. Here's the truth. The quietness and the trust that brings strength is our choice. I can continue to focus on the injustice and the anger and the, and the way I think that the world is being ran incorrectly or whatever it is. I can focus on that or I can say, I give it to you, Jesus. I trust you with the outcome. And I will find rest in your meekness, Jesus. I will find rest. And in that rest and in that trust, I will find strength. When I find that strength, I turn it back over to Jesus under his control. Strength under control. Meekness that comes from trust. But it's our choice. The context in which Isaiah wrote that was that, I, that the nation of Israel was being attacked by other nations around them. And their first thought, the first thing they did was, we need help. And they ran off to Egypt and they asked them, they paid them to come and protect them with their great horses. First of all, it didn't work. Why? Because that wasn't God's will for them. 
Isaiah says in this whole passage there, God said, I wanted you to come to me in repentance and in rest with your strength, not in the might and the power of another nation. Come to me first. Don't fix it. Don't try to fix it. Don't in your own human mind think of what the next step should be. No, come, repent, and rest. Then it all falls into place. I think developing meekness is one of the hardest uh, godly characteristics for us to allow the Holy Spirit to grow in us. It is not a natural characteristic of our lives. Even if you meet somebody who is quiet, who is introverted, that doesn't mean they're meek. Neither does it mean that somebody who is strong and powerful and outgoing or something like that, that doesn't mean that they aren't meek. It's a matter of the heart and the position before God and what they're allowing God to do with their strengths in life. How are they allowing God to use those strengths in life? We humans inherited a trait from our first human parents, the tendency to manufacture a covering to hide our shame. Like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, often what we manufacture to hide our shame is a lot of good works and adherence to a strict set of rules of conduct that we think will make us right with God and make us look good to other people. But that's not where it's at. We only can deal with the shame when we deal with what caused the shame. What caused the shame is our sin. So the first thing is, going to Jesus and saying, I need you to forgive my sin because I am unable to, but you are able to. It's that repentance, coming to Jesus, trusting him to forgive you from your sin, be the leader of your life. That breaks the sin, that breaks the power of the shame from that sin, and God no longer sees you as shameful. The shame is gone. But here's the thing. There are many, many of us who have known Jesus for many, many years, who have accepted him as a leader of our life, the forgiver of our sins. We are desiring to walk in his ways and be like him, be led by the Holy Spirit. And yet we are still manufacturing a covering for our shame. We're walking around trying to do all the right things and say all the right things and look the right way, especially among other Christians, lest they see something in us that is shameful. But here's the thing. There is no shame in you if you have accepted Jesus as a forgiver of your sins. Yes, we do sins, we do things after that that can cause shame, but it is an instant of confess your sins to Jesus and he will forgive you in an instant, no lasting shame. You sin, you come, you ask for refund. If you need to make it right with someone else, you go to them and you make it right. But it's an instant forgiveness, not something you carry with you and continue to try to hide. Part of being meek is coming to the understanding that you have nothing to hide from God. And you want nothing to hide from anyone else either because the only opinion that matters is God's. And I understand that you may know intellectually that there is no shame left in you. It's all been forgiven and it is all erased and gone. And yet you're afraid of what other people might think if they really knew what was really inside you, if they really knew what you had done or how you felt, or maybe what was done to you that left you feeling shameful. But you know what? The only opinion that really matters is God's, and you will find as you begin to take off that 
covering and open yourself to what God thinks of you, and you begin to share who you really are with other Christ followers around you, you will find more love and acceptance than you realize was possible. I am aware that there are people in the church that hurt you, that that don't take that well, that sometimes take what you share with them and use it against you. Those are people who need forgiveness from God, that need to, to find healing and, and grace from him because often they're reacting that way because there's something shameful they're hiding in themselves. But I will tell you, you will find more people in the body of Christ, in the family of Jesus, that will love you and accept you and allow you to be healed than there are those that would use it against you. It's part of the healing process. Part of saying, I have nothing to hide from God and nothing to hide from other people around me. As you walk in the power of the Holy Spirit, he will guide you when to say something to someone, when to share your story, when not to. But you will find freedom. You will find freedom. As you find that meekness that says, I'm free in Christ. I have nothing to hide. I don't need to hide shame anymore because there's no shame left to hide. Let's talk just for the next five minutes of that little last part of Matthew 5, 5. The part where the meek inherit the earth. What does that mean? Well, when Jesus said the meek will inherit the earth, he was actually quoting from Psalm 37, verse 11. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Verse 11 is a promise, and it's contingent on the preceding 10 verses. So in order to understand what Jesus was saying about inheriting the earth in Matthew 5, we need to take a look at the first 10 verses of Psalm 37. I'm going to read for you. Listen, look it up later and read through it yourself. Beautiful psalm. Just 11 verses to focus on. Psalm 37. Do not fret because of those who are evil or be envious of those who do wrong. For like the grass, they will soon wither. Like green plants, they'll soon die away. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and enjoy safe pasture. Take delight in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will make your righteous reward shine like the dawn, and your vindication like the noonday sun. Be still before the Lord, and wait patiently for him. Do not fret when people succeed in their ways, when they carry out their wicked schemes. Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. For those who are evil will be destroyed, but those who hope in the Lord will inherit the land. A little while, and the wicked will be no more. Though you look for them, they will not be found. But the meek will inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Three times in those verses, it says, do not fret. Don't fret because of those who do evil and don't envy them. Don't fret when wicked people succeed in their schemes. And finally, in verse 8, just plain, do not fret. It leads only to evil. There is a theme there. Don't worry. Don't fret. No matter what evil you see around you, it will pass away in eternity. Don't worry, because those who hope in the Lord, that's you, will inherit the land. So according to Psalm 37, what are we to do? 
will lead to meekness, that will lead us to inherit the land and enjoy peace and prosperity. Trust in the Lord, verse 3. Take delight in the Lord, verse 4. Commit your way to the Lord, verse 5. Be still and wait before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Verse 7. Refrain 